Welcome back to You Solved a Mystery here on KXWYZ. (laughs) (laughs) This is a podcast where we delve into segments of the iconic Unsolved Mysteries and reveal the final chapter. I'm Athena. And I'm Chandra. And if we sound exactly the same, it's because we're twins. There are 13 kittens living in my bedroom, so if you hear any crinkling, any meowing, any bells ringing, please bear with us as they are playing right outside the closet door. Today I have what I think is the very last segment from the original specials before we jump into season one. So special number seven was once again hosted by Robert Stack. And it originally aired May 19th, 1988, and this segment has been reworked into Season 1, Episode 3 on YouTube. It was also featured in Season 2 of uh, Unsolved Mysteries with Dennis Farina, but just watch it with Robert Stack, because why wouldn't you? So was he still, I mean, I guess spoilers, but was he still not caught? No, the Dennis Farina episodes are just stack episodes recut with Dennis Farina as host instead and a different theme song. Why? I don't understand. Also, I found out there was actually another host of Unsolved Mysteries just for season 12, and she co-hosted with Robert Stack, Virginia Madsen who I know best from Monk and Candyman, the classic horror movie that's kind of like, pull, it pulls from Bloody Mary and the Hookman and kind of brings a lot of urban legends together. Mm-hmm. But I guess the ratings were falling a little bit, and so they decided to bring in a, a woman and a little bit of a younger host. Uh, apparently it didn't help because that was the last season they had on NBC, so... The forgotten host. The forgotten woman host, of Of course. course. (laughs) The newspapers called him Con Juan, the Casanova Con Man, and the Heart Attacker. But really, he was an abusive, pathological liar and bigamist who conned lonely women and some unlucky men, manipulating them out of their money, sometimes their entire life savings. He would do this by running up credit cards, encouraging them to buy jewelry and cars, and he would push them to invest in restaurants. According to a 1988 article in the Tennessean, he would also sometimes convince prospects that he was dying of an incurable disease and only had months to live. How does someone else buying a car or investing in a restaurant help him get money? I'm not so sure about the jewelry and cars, but I'll get to the restaurant part. Okay. I can't tell you much about Louis Carlucci's early life. His legacy revolves around the decade and a half he spent sweet-talking and swindling women and a few subsequent years spent on the run from the law. 
Most of his victims remained strictly anonymous, so it's difficult, if not impossible, to come up with a timeline of when he started his cons or why. What I do know is that at the time Carlucci was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, he was wanted for bigamy, grand larceny, and fraud after stealing an accumulative one million from the women he conned, and was believed to have nine wives with no divorces and 30 children. Yikes. Oh man, that sucks for those women. Truly. Most of his victims were unmarried or divorced women ages 30 to 45 who he met at dances, singles gatherings, or through dating services. He preyed on lonely women. On the Farina episode, they talked to John Santucci, the former Queens County DA, and he explained that the problem with this kind of case is that the victims are embarrassed. No one wants to admit they were conned out of their money, but they're even more reluctant to admit they were taken for love. If somebody wrongs you, you gotta get that son of a bitch. Yeah. I think the shame is, for one, unnecessary. You didn't do anything wrong. And two, what made it possible for Carlucci to get away with what he did for 15 years. Also, don't trust anybody until you Google them. (laughs) In this day and age. It was in September of 1981 that Carlucci met the only woman that I could find who ever agreed to speak out about Carlucci's schemes, though she did choose to remain anonymous in the segment. Unsolved Mysteries dubbed her Barbara, filmed her in shadow, and electronically disguised her voice. She's got a great Queen's accent that I will not try to imitate because I can't, but it's fantastic. (laughs) In 1981, Carlucci arrived in Queens, New York, with nothing but a garment bag containing his one good suit. He met Barbara at a local bar. He sent drinks over to her and her friend, and her first impression of him was not flattering. No style, no class. But as they talked, he was attentive. He seemed nice, warm, and reliable. They started dating, and after just seven weeks, they married in a small ceremony at the bar where they met. Isn't it sad that all a guy has to do is be nice and attentive? (laughs) It's pretty sad. (laughs) I mean, she, based on her uh, interview in the episode, she sounds like she's a a pretty badass, Mm -hmm. taking no guff Mm -hmm. lady. You'd think that there would have been some other guys who would just do the basics of being nice and attentive. In 1981, maybe she was too strong, (sighs) too tough, a working girl. Too intimidating. Yeah. Right away, the marriage turned sour, to put it lightly. Barbara said he became angry with her for talking to other people at the wedding. That's very right away. She paid for their honeymoon, as he claimed his money was tied up. Then they moved into an unfurnished New York apartment where they lived out of their suitcases. Carlucci wouldn't let Barbara out of his sight. He paid for their living expenses with Barbara's credit card. So really, she paid for their living expenses. Mm -hmm. But he took control of the card. 
She said he became a Jekyll and Hyde. Quote, the man was very physical. He would pull her hair and smack her. And she said, quote, I got scared. I got really scared. Because she realized all he wanted from her was money. Carlucci was controlling and mentally and physically abusive. Barbara couldn't go anywhere without him, couldn't speak to anyone, couldn't make a phone call without him listening. She couldn't even order food from a waitress if they went out, because he thought she would be trying to send a signal for help. I just got chills just thinking about that. Mm. She was held virtually captive for six months. She had no way of contacting anyone or telling them what was happening. Over those six months, he used up Barbara's money, savings, and credit cards. Until one day, he caught her in the bathroom with a razor. She was so desperate to get away, she was considering dying by suicide. Barbara says Carlucci then realized she was either going to die by suicide or waste away and die, so he left. He had also squandered her $20,000 life savings. That's pretty good savings. Yeah. She worked her whole life for that. It's just terrible what he did. It was hard for Barbara to admit what happened, as she said, quote, When you try to explain to someone what happened, they look at you and they say, well, how could you get taken like that? End quote. She felt ashamed. Well, she had to have whiplash. True. From the nice, attentive guy who she married after seven weeks, to she said that he changed immediately. Mm -hmm. That had to be very disorienting. And then by the time she got the full picture, she was probably already isolated. Yeah. Luckily, once he left, she was able to go back to her friends, and they encouraged her to press charges. Good friends. Yeah, that's true friendship. Barbara feared repercussions from Carlucci for coming forward. But the thought that he was still out there somewhere getting away with his scheme over and over was, quote, a terrible thought. So she came forward because she wanted to warn other women. You go, girl. (laughs) So she went to Detective Kenneth Kleinlin from the Special Fraud Bureau, who began looking into Carlucci and believed him to be a serial swindler. He started receiving calls from women in California, Las Vegas, New Orleans, Florida, New Jersey, and New York, including two additional victims in Queens. I have to say, I'm both surprised and pleased with how seriously they seem to have taken this Mm -hmm. right away. Yeah, I really like Detective Kleinlin. He really took these women seriously and was very understanding, I think, of what they were going through. He kept their identities strictly confidential and recognized what he called a psychological scarring that the encounters with Carlucci left. Kleinlin estimated that Carlucci was cheating 10 to 15 women a year and wasn't going to stop. Lieutenant John Kelly, commander of the Fraud Bureau, was quoted in an article printed in several papers saying, quote, The women's reactions ranged from embarrassment to despair to a sense of having been taken to absolute anger, end quote. By 1986, the Special Frauds Unit had six complaints against Carlucci. Lieutenant Kelly also refused to identify any victims, which I think is the right thing to do. Yes, yeah. obviously. So that's why I point that out. Here's the thing. 
As far as I can tell, Barbara did come forward publicly in a 1984 article published in New York Magazine, although some elements of the story differ slightly, so it's a little bit confusing, but the timing works out for Barbara to be Mary Stokowski. Mary was 42 years old, divorced, and raising two teenagers by herself when she met with Detective Kleinlin. She explained that in 1981, she was very lonely and would sometimes go to single bars, which Unsolved Mysteries called friendship clubs, because <laughs> I guess a singles bar is too scandalous for the 1980s. Like, they're kind of perp- they're kind of perpetuating- fuck. They're kind of perpetuating- <laughs> <laughs> What word am I trying to say? Perpetrating? Yeah. Or portraying? Perpetrating. Okay. (laughs) Or perpetuating? Perpetuating might be what They're perpetuating this idea that it's shameful for women to be single, but it's also shameful for them to date. Hmm. So there's like no winning. Yeah. Nope. No (laughs) winning when you're a woman. So Mary Stakowski met a man who turned out to be Carlucci, who seemed to be a good listener, and she opened up to him about hardships she was facing, primarily having so much responsibility to juggle, and Carlucci seemed deeply sympathetic. They began dating, and Carlucci was frequently short on cash, supposedly, due to having half a million tied up in jewelry investments, supposedly. Mm-hmm. One day... He took her to an upscale restaurant on Madison Avenue and told her he was preparing to buy it. Mm-hmm. And that he would be able to double or even triple her money if she invested. One article described him as, quote, swaggering through, pointing out the highlights. Oh, so he got them to give him money directly, mm-hmm. saying that he was going to put it into a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And that might be what he did with jewelry as well. I'm going to invest in this store or something. For Mary, he insisted on signing a promissory note for her investment and everything else she had bought him. Because she would buy him clothes, food, everything. Yeah, a promissory note is only going to mean anything if you have scruples. Yeah. (laughs) He insisted on signing it. It was just another trick. It was just another con. In the New York Magazine article, it stated that they married in November after one month of dating, and since he met Barbara in September of 1981, that's why I think Barbara and Mary are the same person. Hmm. But some of the little details differ. So, and where were her kids Yeah, in the Unsolved Mystery story? It's a little confusing. It's possible she left the teenagers out of the story that she told Unsolved Mysteries to protect them was one thought I had. And the article also implies that she had slightly more freedom because it says that she came home one day in 1982 and found he was gone. Maybe they're different people. If the year is right, then he would have had to have been controlling Barbara and marrying Mary at the same time. There were multiple articles published in 1983 that spoke of additional victims who were not named. 
Newspapers across the country had a field day with article titles that they thought were so clever, like Police Seek Casanova Con Man, A Sweet Line Was Costly, Matrimony, <laughs> and To Love and Swindle. A lot of them were super body shamey towards Carlucci, which he's an asshole, but we're not going to do here. No. By 1983, Carlucci was believed to have married 10 women and had a warrant issued in Queens where he had three victims. One, I believe, was Barbara or Mary. Another was a waitress he was dating at the same time. And another was his landlord, who stood as best man at his wedding. Wait, which one? <laughs> right? <laughs> if, I mean, if Barbara was working and was too afraid to say anything to her co-workers, then he could potentially have been conning multiple people at the same time. Yeah. He could have been dating somebody while Barbara was at work. Yeah, because he didn't work. Well, actually, that's not true. He did work. Uh, he was working as a diner chef. Um, and he would, he would tell women that that was a temporary job until he purchased his restaurant. Okay. That's unexpected. He convinced all three of his queen's victims to invest in the restaurant. Again, promising to double or triple their money. The waitress gave him $30,000. Whoa. She was really good at saving, or she took yeah. out a bank loan or something. That's possible. Because she believed in him, and that's so sad. We already know that he took everything from Barbara slash Mary, and his best man and landlord, who Carlucci said would be partner at the restaurant. This is just funny. I wrote parter. <laughs> took out loans to give him $8,800. Uh, to give perspective, in today's money... 8,800 is 25,600, which is a good chunk of change. Mm -hmm. And Carlucci's treachery lost that man, his family, his home, oh. and his job. And he still no. had to pay the loans back. How awful oh is that? God. Horrible. Yeah, Carlucci really ruined lives. Like, oh, Casanova con man, matrimony. They, they talk about it like it's funny, and this is really awful what he's doing. Detective Kleinland has a lot of good one-liners throughout all the articles on this case, and he warns the public that Carlucci is, quote, glib of tongue and has a very good line, end quote. A detail I found interesting was that Kleinland had a degree in psychology. Hmm. So I wonder if that's why he was so understanding of the pain that Carlucci caused for these women beyond leaving them financially ruined but also hurting them emotionally. Maybe more people who are in the position to interact with people who have recently gone through trauma should have experience in the field of mental health. What a concept. Just an idea. Just throwing it out there. Kleinland told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, it's particularly devastating because they really trust him, end quote. He said Carlucci wasn't going to stop because financially and emotionally devastating women was how he made his living. It's his job to be terrible. Yeah, he made it his job to be awful. And he's a hard worker. He's real good at his job of being an asshole. On May 18th, 1988, 
Special number seven of Unsolved Mysteries aired, and several viewers called the FBI to report the man they knew as Louis Sarah. All but one caller refused to identify themselves. Carlucci was arrested by the FBI in Nashville, Tennessee, where he was living with his pregnant girlfriend. Oh, no. Another Another one. one. (laughs) Detective Kleinlin had been searching for him for six years. Imagine all the women he swindled in six years. While waiting for extradition back to New York on a warrant for unlawful flight to avoid persecution... Carlucci told the Tennessean that he had watched Unsolved Mysteries before, but he missed his segment because he was hosting a birthday party that evening. (laughs) He said he never thought they'd do a segment on him. The paper stated he, quote, appeared to be in a surprisingly cheerful mood, end quote, and quoted him as saying, quote, I'm glad it's over. It's no fun being on the run. I'm not saying I'm an angel, but I'm not a murderer either, end quote. Okay, hold on a second. When he thought that Barbara was going to die by suicide, he walked out to let her. I think Barbara implies the reason he left was that she wouldn't die. That is not what I got. Okay. Can you explain how you interpreted it that way? Well, she says he knew I was either going to die because I was going to waste away or I was going to die by suicide. So he left. And I thought that his leaving was because he realized if he stayed, she'd waste away or die by suicide. But also he had used up all her money, so it might not have anything to do with her. The way I interpreted it was that he felt like she was going to die either way, and he was done with her. Mm -hmm. And if she died, then she wouldn't be able to come forward for help or anything. It was safe for him to stop controlling her you could very well be right i could have misunderstood that and that's even worse i already hated this guy and now i hate him even more (laughs) and then also there's his landlord that we just learned about who lost literally everything in his life he didn't lose his life but you don't have to be a murderer to be a bad person (laughs) yeah you don't have to be a murderer to be absolute garbage That's your tagline, is absolute garbage. (laughs) We should have a shirt that says absolute garbage. So Carlucci was extradited to New York, where he was charged with larceny, fraud, and bigamy. He posted his $1,000 bail, and before he could stand trial before the Queen's Supreme Court, he bounced. Hold on. They spent six years trying to track this guy down. He's a skilled con man. Mm Mm-hmm. And they still gave him bail. Yeah. I don't get it either. (laughs) And just a thousand dollars when he's conned women out of over a million. Someone did not take this as seriously as... Detective Kleinlin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the good news is that this is why, to quote Robert Stack, quote... Louis Carlucci has the dubious distinction of being captured twice, thanks to viewers. <laughs> dubious distinction. Mm-hmm. The case was profiled again on Unsolved Mysteries in July of 1989. Once again, several viewers called to report sightings, this time in L.A., 
where he was living in a garage and had a girlfriend and child. Oh, good freaking grief. One of his 35 children. Uh... The trauma of the women and the children is just unimaginable because they're all getting abandoned. Ugh. All of them were going to have such a hard time trusting. Mm-hmm. But before the segment even aired in 89, California police were already watching Carlucci. A Mormon missionary had been trying to convert him, and Carlucci wound up admitting to him who he was and everything he did. <laughs> so the missionary was like, Cool, cool, cool. I'm just going to go talk to you later and notify the authorities. <laughs> I'm curious to what aim he admitted who he was. Was he trying to say, I really don't want to join the church. I'm a terrible person. See? Or was he like trying to confess, like somehow clear his soul to become a part of the church? <laughs> He doesn't seem to be a person with a lot of empathy or anything, so it's hard to imagine that he would be confessing because he felt bad. <laughs> Again, he was extradited to New York, this time charged with grand larceny, coercion, fraud, and bigamy. And failure to appear in court? <laughs> I imagine that might have been in there somewhere. <laughs> By this point, it was believed that he had had 15 wives and had conned over a million dollars. He was convicted on all counts and served four years in prison. I just Here don't. Here we are again at this understand. awkward position where the criminal justice system is garbage, and also how? Yeah, four years. It's all part of the garbage. How does sentencing even work? Like, why do why do people get? How do they decide these massively different sentences for people between Carlucci, who abused and stole from women, and uh, Terry Connor and Joseph Doherty, who admittedly used guns? That wasn't great, but they get like 200 years. A fist and a gun can both be weapons. Yeah, I have to think that. It's that the victims were women rather than banks that made a lot of the difference. And sadly, I think that you're right. So Carlucci was released into supervised custody in 1994. And he conned the person supervising his custody? I have no idea. <laughs> Fun fact, he was the seventh person apprehended by Unsolved Mysteries viewer tips. But this is where... All verified accounts of Carlucci I could find end. Son of a nutcracker. It could be the end of our story. But we're going to take a little stroll into gray areas. Oh. While looking for more information on Carlucci's life, like his childhood and everything after he was released, I came across a post on the message board sitcomsonline.com from 2003. They have a lot of posts about Unsolved Mysteries. Okay, at first I was really confused, and then I remembered we're talking about a TV show, mm -hmm. and, and sitcoms are on a TV, mm -hmm. so, okay. <laughs> There's a link there. A user called Composite Sketch posted that they wondered what had happened to Carlucci, and three people who responded claimed to be his children. 
and another stated that they and their family were victims of his. In 2012, one of the professed children, user Only God Knows the Truth, wrote that he was his biological son and wanted to offer a little information that he knew. We have to take this with a grain of salt because even in the thread, it's mentioned multiple times that there are people out there who will pretend to be his child to get information. There's thoughts that someone wants to write a book about him, and so they'll, like Carlucci, they'll try to con people. And there are even people who will pretend to be Carlucci. Hmm. So I can't verify any of the following information. The commenter Only God Knows the Truth stated that he only met Carlucci two or three times in his life. He states over and over how sorry he is about what Carlucci did to his victims, that he understands how devastating it was to entire families, and that he was ashamed to be his child. You don't need to be ashamed. No. It wasn't your doing. No. Um, but he implies that he's spoken to other children of Carlucci who feel the same. He writes, quote, I know he was a sick man based on what I've heard through my family and stories I was told that I know are factual, end quote. He states that in 2002, Carlucci was incarcerated in a correctional facility in Minnesota, and he visited to let him know that Carlucci's mother, the writer's grandmother, was dying. He doesn't say why he was in jail in 2002, but I wouldn't be too surprised if he had gone back to conning people. By speaking to him, only God knows the truth learned that Carlucci was very sick and about to be released from custody. He wrote, quote, He was told to contact his mother, and in Lewis fashion, he never did, and she died without speaking to him. End quote. I mean, if I was his mother, I'd die without speaking to him, too. In this case, I think she wanted him to contact her. Yes, that's very sad, and yeah. I prefer my <laughs> version. She had lots of grandchildren to love. Yeah. <laughs> Bonus. <laughs> the user stated that he learned later that Carlucci had had to have a leg amputated due to complications from diabetes and passed away in 2005. Hmm. I couldn't find an obituary on Carlucci. Well, maybe nobody wanted to remember him. Mm hmm. It seems that after spending his life preying on lonely women, he himself had died alone. User Only God Knows the Truth ended his comment by saying, quote, To everyone who has suffered because of Louis Carlucci and whatever other aliases he went by, my deepest sympathies to them all. I do believe his demons got the best of him, and he is in a place where all the suffering he caused he is now paying for. End quote. I mentioned earlier a 1984 article in New York Magazine. The subject of the article was cons, and it discussed examples of a few different types of grifts that were popular at the time. They interviewed Detective Kleinlin about how to avoid getting conned, and he said, Most people you meet aren't cons, but trust your instincts. He said, quote, Cons are great street psychologists. People are basically curious, basically helpful. It's part of our socialization process. The victim of the con suppresses their suspicions out of self-defense. The victim believes what he or she wants to believe. Most of all, beware of strangers bearing gifts. End quote. 
if people want to believe that the world is good, then they're gonna put on blinders. That's true. There's the whole ignorance is bliss idea. But another thing I appreciate about Klein Lin is that he said, most people aren't cons. Most people aren't trying to harm you. Like, he doesn't want to make the world a darker place by making everyone afraid all the time. Is he sure about that, though? <laughs> oh, 1984. You didn't know yet. <laughs> there was no QAnon. <laughs> <laughs> Although there was Satanic Panic, <laughs> which we'll also talk about in an upcoming episode. Oh. Ah, interesting. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say it's not the kid's fault his no. 35 children nope and i sincerely hope that they all had fulfilling lives or out there living fulfilling lives and it's also not the women's fault that they got conned nope and uh i hope that society is moving in a direction where people don't have to be ashamed about things like that shame in general just isn't a very useful emotion Unless someone should have shame, like Louis Carlucci himself. A little shame. A little bit of shame. <laughs> a little bit of shame is a good thing. Or just the capability of feeling guilty for harming another person. <laughs> I wonder if Carlucci had a personality disorder or something, honestly, to be able to just hurt people nonstop like that. Knowing what shame is and knowing that you don't want to feel it. Mm-hmm. I think that's what an empathetic person does, or a compassionate person. Thanks for joining us for another episode. If you want to link up with us, we are on Instagram, at you solved a mystery. You can also email us at mystery at gmail.com. If you'd be so kind as to go on Apple Podcasts and give us a review and rating, that's just super swell. Thank you to the four people who have given us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Sincerely, that makes me feel really good inside <laughs> that you took the time to do that. Um, and maybe share us with a friend that you think would be interested in solved mysteries. Because that's what we do here. <laughs> As always, I'm Athena. And I'm Chandra. Join us next time for You Solved a Mystery. <laughs> <laughs>